0: We've been waiting for you. Come on in. It's Talk 10 Tuesday with Chuck Bach and Dr. Erica Riemer for March 7, 2023. Today, we're monitoring the CMS Coordination and Maintenance Committee meeting that started at 9 o'clock this morning. We'll be checking in shortly. And joining our coverage team is Linda Holtzman. Lori Johnson reports on new codes being proposed at the meeting. Legendary HIM professional Rose Dunn returns with her Dunn report. Tim Powell is at the Tuesday News Desk, and Dr. Reamer presents her talkback segment. Now here's the publisher of ICD-10 Monitor, the host of Talk 10 Tuesday, and a man who has volunteered to play his accordion at King Charles' coronation and is just waiting to hear back, Sir Charles Buck.
1: (laughs) Yeah, 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 the stomach, Steinway, I think they call it. Yeah, thanks, Mark Anthony. Hello, everybody. And welcome to the 544th live edition of Talk 10 Tuesday. (laughs) And good morning, Erica.
2: Good morning, Chuck, and good morning, everyone.
1: And as you heard Clark Anthony announce, we're monitoring the Coordination maintenance Committee meeting that's now underway at CMS headquarters in Baltimore.
2: I'm gr- well aware. I am attending virtually myself right now.
1: Good for you, Erica. I would expect that you would do that. Uh, by the way, what is your talkback segment about this morning?
2: I'm going to be talking about a topic related to the ICD-10 PCS codes that they're discussing at the meeting right now.
1: As always, Erica, we look forward to your talk back segment. We have, of course, much news to report. And begin this morning with Tim Powell. Tim is at the Talk 10 Tuesday News Desk.
3: Thanks, Chuck. And the question I have for today is, big pharma paying your doc? The Open Payments Search Tool is a public database created by the Centers for Medicare and Medicaid Services, CMS, that allows the public to search for payments made by drug and medical device companies to healthcare providers and teaching hospitals. The database includes information about financial transactions such as research funding, gifts, meals, travel expense, consulting fees, and the forgiveness of debt. It is designed to increase the transparency in the healthcare industry and to help patients make informed decisions about their healthcare provider treatments. The website, which is at httpsopenpaymentsdata.cms.gov, is available to the public. So I decided to try a random search using the lookup tool on the website, and I randomly picked Rush University Medical Center in Chicago. It turns out that Rush received $3,558,856 in general payments and another 8430839 in research payments from the pharmaceutical companies. Additionally, general payments have been increasing from a little over a million dollars in 2015 to $3.5 in 2021. So Uh, Along with my article that you'll see when it's published, I put out a graph of payment donors, and the top payment donors under the general category include Merck, Sharp, Dome, LLC, Medtronics, Cellgen, Abbey V, Janssen Scientific Affairs, uh, Eli Lilly, Genentech, and the Striker Corporation. So then I decided to take a look in detail at the research payments from CMS, and I got the following data. Genentech, made 114 payments totaling $856,000 to this facility. And I'm not in any way commenting on what pharmaceutical companies pay to hospitals like Rush, but I'm pointing out that whether you are a physician or a hospital, there's publicly available data on how much big pharma was paid to you. If you want to dig deeper into this data, you don't have to use you don't have to use CMS's you can use CMS's handy tool Uh, but you can also download the data onto your own database. So I went ahead and downloaded the entire 6.6 gigabyte data file for the general payments data from, from the CMS site so that I can drill down into the total amounts any way I want. If you don't have your own database, CMS offers an API interface where a programmer can write code in order to pull the data from the CMS data that you would like to look at. And so I've been thinking that maybe I should write a book. And with that, back to you, Chuck.
1: Thanks, Tim. That was Tim Powell. Tim is a compliance expert and the national correspondent for ICD-10 Monitor. And, Tim, we look forward to your book. It is Tuesday. It's March the 7th, and you're listening to the 544th live edition of Talk Ten Tuesday. Stand by.
0: What do you do when CMS unloads barrels and barrels of new codes into your lap, like fallen leaves? How do you stay on top of your game as a coding genius? You subscribe to the ICD-10 Monitor Coding Portal. For an unbelievably low subscription price, you have access to the superstars of coding, Glorianne Bryant, Lori Johnson, and Dr. Erica Reamer. You'll have access to more than 40 educational webcasts. Plus, you'll earn CEUs to maintain your credentials. Retail value, more than $5,960. But for a limited time, Your subscription is only $35 per webcast, a savings of 75%. Subscribe today to the ICD-10 Monitor Coding Portal.
1: Now it's the time for the Talked in Tuesday Coding Report with Lori Johnson. And this morning, Lori is monitoring the CMS Coordination and Maintenance Committee meeting. that's taking place at this very hour at CMS headquarters in Baltimore. And good morning, Lori. Lori, what's the latest?
4: Well, Chuck, the latest is that the meeting did kick off at 9 a.m. sharp, as Clark had mentioned. Um, they're starting with the CMS uh, presenting the pr- uh, procedure proposals. Um, the comment deadline for um, these Cases for the October 1st, I'm sorry, for the October 1st is May 5th, um, and that's for proposals being implemented for April of 2024. June 9th is the deadline to submit proposals for the September 12th to 13th Coordination and Maintenance Committee meeting. There are 31 proposals for procedures including the nine proposals that will not be presented in the addendum. The first topic this morning was the implantation of, the, of bioprosthetic femoral venous valves, um, and the options that they gave was not to create and to, or to add a new table, which is X2H, which is an insertion um, table in the, in the um, cardiac um, body system. So then they did some announcements, and announcements included Z eleven point five two. That that code it's been in the system, um, the coding system, but the the advice was not to assign it. But it will become effective on ten one twenty three, and that was the announcement from the AHA central office representative. And then they also talked about streamlining the application process for new procedure codes and perhaps not maintaining the background papers and um, just maintain the slides for the presentations, and they're requesting comments on that topic. Um, The initial thought was the background papers were thought to be very, very important, and um, we don't want to give those up. They've also moved on to the insertion of dual chamber leadless pacemakers. Um, there seems to be a little confusion over the current uh, available codes and what the new codes are. And they have just finished the clinical presentation on the percutaneous femoral popliteal artery bypass um, proposal. So they're moving along. The um, agenda seems to be it's time defined, and uh, they seem to be sticking to their timelines. So with that, back to you, Erica.
2: Thanks, Lori. I'm just going to tell our audience that Z11.52 is encounter for screening for COVID-19. And the reason it was put on hold is during the time of the pandemic or an epidemic, there is no screening. So um, after October 1st, they've decided it's going to be fair game again. Um, Thanks. That was Lori Johnson. Lori is Senior Healthcare Consultant for Revenue Cycle Solutions, LLC. Chuck?
1: Thanks, Erica, and thanks for that explanation, and thank you again, Lori Johnson. Coming up next, the latest news on the social determinants of health with Tiffany Ferguson.
0: This segment is sponsored by HITEX, a clinical informatics organization dedicated to bringing the most advanced technology and people to assist healthcare professionals at the point of care. Find them
1: at HITEX.com. Here now is Tiffany Ferguson.
5: Good morning, all. Last month, the American Health Information Management Association, AHIMA, as we all know it, in partnership with the National Opinion Research Center, NORC, at the University of Chicago released their final report on social determinants of health data. The link will be in my article out this week. The survey was completed with a little over 2,600 respondents to obtain a better understanding of how SDOH information is collected coded and used to inform the development of potential educational tools and resources that may be needed for health information professionals, as well as guidance for policy recommendations. The report found that about 78% of respondents confirmed that their organization is collecting SDOH data primarily through electronic means, typically the EMR. In regards to the most prevalent SDOH data domains, it appeared that collecting information for health and health behaviors was the highest priority among healthcare organizations. Examples of this information surround health insurance coverage and inclusion of health factors such as smoking and history of drug or alcohol utilization. One can understand why this is easily collected data as any service requires registration of health insurance and coverage benefits and tobacco and substance use history is standard in nursing and physician documentation. The second most common factor was housing insecurity followed by economic insecurity. However, among that, it was really a grab bag of other SDOH factors in the rankings. One of the policy recommendations from AHEMA was to create standardized clinically valid and actionable data elements for collection. I would strongly request that the organizations follow CMS's social drivers of health, which is at this point has prioritized housing, food, utilities, in, trans, transportation insecurity, and personal safety as the top priorities. However, I would absolutely agree with AHIMA that CMS's quality metrics should be in concert with the push for CMS's SDOH Z-code data capture. Additionally, the report found that although the majority of respondents are consistently using ICD-10-CM for coding and collecting SDOH data, the tools that are utilized to screen and assess members are wildly different. There was also a significant decline in the integration of this information into workflows after the data was collected. Obviously, the challenges that relate to this discrepancy were cited around lack of training and how to find these details in the medical record, and then what to do with it once it is collected. The limitations are likely tied to AHEMA's second policy recommendation, which is the request for CMS to align financial incentives with these efforts around SDOH. I would absolutely agree with this request. The amount of work that it has taken to care for patients that struggle with such SDOH factors as housing insecurity significantly impact the resources and amount of care needed medically to this population. Recognition of these efforts beyond internal data collection would absolutely go a long way. And with that, back to you, Erica.
2: Thanks, Tiffany. That was Tiffany Ferguson, the CEO for Phoenix Medical Management. Chuck?
1: Thank you both very much. We're very honored to have the legendary HIM professional, Rose Dunn, on today's broadcast. And Rose has an update on HCCs. And good morning, Rose Dunn.
6: Well, good morning, Chuck. Today, I wish to highlight some of the items that came out of the final rule for the Medicare Advantage Risk Adjustment Data Validation, or for short, RADVI program and the CMS 2024 advance notice for Medicare Advantage, neither of which are being welcomed by the risk adjustment community. So let's start with the January 30th final RADVI rule. We now know that CMS intends to use extrapolation of audit findings to determine the overpayment. It will start at this methodology with Payment Year 2018, which is based on the claims that were submitted in calendar year 2017. However, no extrapolation is going to be used for Payment Years 2011 to 2017, which CMS still needs to audit. The OIG and CMS both expect to conduct audits of payment year 2018 in this year and in 2024 with a projection of reporting the extrapolated overpayment amounts in 2025. Statistical methods will be used to determine the sample sizes, but they may focus the samples on those conditions and health plans that have shown some notable trends. There will be no change in the coding pattern adjustment, which now stands at 5.9%. This is the adjustment factor used to reduce the overall payment calculation by recognizing that the Medicare Advantage plans have a propensity to capture more codes to their claims than their fee-for-service counterparts. So what's this mean for our coding and CDI teams? We need to keep our eye on clinical documentation. We need to ensure that the conditions coded and included on the claim are supported in the record. And so to learn more about how we may be able to support our providers with their documentation, you may wish to listen to the broadcast I recently did entitled Capturing HCC Payments Key to an Effective CDI Program. The 2024 CMS advance notice came out two days later on February 1st. Important points for this notice included the fact that the HCC model today is really based on ICD-9 data. Can you believe that? So, CMS is planning to create a new model for 2024 using ICD-10 codes. Imagine that. They're only eight years behind. The notice states that the number of HCCs will increase to 115 from 86, but the number of qualifying ICD-10 codes will decrease for payable HCCs by about 2,000 codes. I first thought they might be smoking something since the number of ICD-10 codes is approximately 15 times the number of ICD-9 codes, but perhaps their reduction of codes has to do with the specificity of ICD-10 codes, especially since one of the pr- one of the announcements indicated that the coefficients and weights for HCCs within some clinical diagnostic groups, such as diabetes and congestive heart failure, will now have the same weight regardless of the HCC within the group, meaning that all that specificity really doesn't count. Here's what they're gonna give you as a weight. Anyway, um, regardless, we'll still need to focus on clinical documentation and coding accuracy. The new version will be version 28. Today's version is version 24. Last, they are proposing to remove several HCCs, including protein, calorie, malnutrition, angina pectoris, and an atherosclerosis one. Additionally, the co- uh, additionally there are changes happening to the star rating criteria, but we don't have enough time to talk about those this morning. So, back to you, Erica.
2: Thank you. That was Rose Dunn. Rose is the COO for First Class Solutions. Chuck?
1: Thanks, Erica. And by the way, Rose Dunn is the former president and CEO for AHIMA, and she conducted a very important webcast that's now available on demand. It's called Capturing Payment HTC's Keys to an Effective CDI Program. Thanks again, Rose. We continue our coverage of the ongoing Coordination and Maintenance Committee meeting, but first, this very important message. Stand by. Now you can fast-track
0: success by learning how to connect the dots from clinical to coding for complex interventional radiology services. MedLearn's quick reference color-coded interventional radiology coding charts are concise and help you when reading a patient encounter. The charts tell the true story of procedure coding using color-coded high-quality images. supplemented with quick tips that provide you a shortcut from physician intent to the correct CPT codes. Order these charts today and receive a complimentary webcast, Basics of Interventional Radiology Coding. This webcast will help you get the patient encounter coded right the first time. Hurry, this offer expires March 31st. So save big and order today. To take advantage of this special offer, enter discount code
1: FABIRO23 at checkout. We continue our coverage of the Coordination Remains Maintenance Committee meeting now underway at CMA's headquarters in Baltimore. And our special guest who has been monitoring the uh, proceedings is Linda Holtzman, who joins us now. Good morning, Linda.
7: Good morning, Chuck. And a big thank you to Lori Johnson for starting us off on what's happening at, C- at the CNN meeting today. Including the topics that Lori just discussed, there are 22 procedure code topics being discussed today. Um, that's a middling number. Over the last three years, the total number of procedure code topics has been as high as 32 and as low as seven. Uh, we've been seeing a number of trends in the type of procedure code topics, and today's meeting is no exception. One key trend is the request for ICD 10 PCS procedure codes, not so much for what we think of as surgeries, but rather for services involving making diagnoses via measurement and monitoring, particularly involving computer assistance. So, for example, there's one topic later today on computer-aided detection of heart failure in echocardiography, and this is the use of artificial intelligence to review an echocardiogram and apply an algorithm to predict the likelihood of heart failure. This information, this A prediction goes to the physician. The physician is the one who makes the diagnosis, but the physician is aided by this prediction as well, of course, as their knowledge of other signs and symptoms. There are multiple other topics today that are very similar. For example, one of the topics is measurement of intracranial electrical activity for status epilepticus, which uses a machine learning model to obtain and also analyze EEGs to detect and classify different types of status epileptica. Another topic is monitoring of intracranial electrical activity for delirium, which does the same thing to detect delirium. And there's one called computer-aided triage and notification for measurement of intracranial vessel flow, which uses artificial intelligence to screen CT scans, rapidly identify the type of stroke, you know, hemorrhagic versus a large vessel, ischemic, etc., alert the physician and then automatically push that patient to the front of the line for treatment, because as we all know, in stroke, time equals brain. The C&M committee has gotten comments in the past related to how these are not the sorts of services that we would ordinarily code in an inpatient stay. We don't really even look for them in the documentation either. They're diagnostic services. And even if we did, how would we know that this particular software or algorithm or machine learning was used? I don't have an answer for that question. It's an ongoing discussion amongst uh, CN- the CNM committee, and we, we can expect more of that discussion at today's meeting. But this sort of thing is the future of medicine. So it's worth keeping in mind and keeping an eye on these types of topics when they're on the agendas for CNM meetings. Also, on a very practical basis, most of these topics have applied for NTAPs, so there can be additional payment involved too it's worth looking for these. Now, on the diagnosis code side, the agenda is relatively light for this meeting with just 31 topics. A Key trend here, seven or eight topics, is requests for unique codes for rare diseases. For example, carcinoid heart syndrome, which is a rare type of neuroendocrine tumor, Fanconi anemia, a rare genetic disorder which leads to bone marrow failure, unfortunately, in children, And primary central nervous system um, lymphoma, which is a rare form of non-Hodgkin's lymphoma um, of the brain and spinal cord, uh, which is fascinating because until about 10 years ago, it was believed that the central nervous system didn't even contain lymphatics. I think uh, that CNM may be getting these kinds of requests for rare disorders because if you have 73,639 codes, as we currently do, it doesn't really matter if there are 74,639 codes. So those are the highlights for CNM. We'll catch you at the next meeting in September 2023. Back to you, Dr. Erica. <laughs>
2: that was funny, Linda. Um, so I, I just want to say that everybody should be aware that Linda really contributes a lot to these CNM meetings because she asks lots of really, really good questions. That was the founder of Clarity Coding and my friend, Linda Holtzman.
1: Now's the time for our very popular segment here at Talk 10 Tuesday. It's called Talk Back and it features our own Dr. Erica Riemer. Good morning, Dr. Riemer. It's all yours.
2: My husband, Eric had an unconventional friend who let his cat pick his first kid's name by giving it options on crumpled up paper and seeing which one it batted over the finish line first. Eric and I often exclaim, who makes up these crazy names for drugs as we've seen them advertised in commercials while watching the news at night? Why am I talking about this today? In preparation for the ICD-10 Coordination and Maintenance Committee meeting being held today and tomorrow, I reviewed the agendas. Today is the PCS day, as you've heard, and they notified us that there were new technology add-on payment and TAP procedure codes involving the administration of a therapeutic agent, which CMS announced we were not going to review during the meeting, but they wanted public comments on them anyway. Examples were administration of glofitamab, posolucil, rezafungin, and quizartinib, Drugs have three names, their chemical compound name, their generic name, and their brand name. The chemical name describes the molecular formula would be too long and cumbersome to be useful in common parlance. If you look at the package insert, it will give you this information. The generic or non-proprietary name standardizes drug identification globally and relates to the active ingredient of the drug. The United States adopted names, USAN Council, and the World Health Organization INN program must approve the generic name. The ending or suffix tells us what family a drug is from and can give information about its mechanism of action. For instance, dash MAB indicates monoclonal antibodies, and dash PRIL identifies an angiotensin converting enzyme. Or ACE inhibitor. There are over 600 stems and sub stems which identify classes of drugs. Certain letters are avoided because they aren't found in other languages, and they can't include a company name within the drug or promotional terms. They avoid medical terminology because they don't want to pigeonhole the medication into a single uh, indication. Eventually, they submit names to USAN and the World Health Organization. If accepted, and no one objects after a time for public comment, the non-proprietary name is determined. Next, the company expends oodles of money and lots of time for a marketing group to conceive of a mellifluous name that elicits positive feelings about the medication. Brands, Palbocic, uh, Palbociclib, A breast cancer drug purportedly is a conglomeration of inspiration, embrace, and vibrancy. And supposedly Viagra came from vigorous, as in stream, and Niagara. And Latisse, the eyelash growth drug, is a merger of Lash and the artist's name Matisse. The brand name can't make an overt claim or be promotional and shouldn't include generic name name stems. But they may try to convey the action of the medication, like lowpressor, which is a blood pressure medication, or Glucotrol, which is meant to control blood glucose levels. Sometimes the brand name is a shortened version of the generic name, like Keflex for Cephalexin. The brand name has to be unique and can't be too similar to another medication such that it might cause a dispensing error. It can't look or sound like another drug. They even check handwritten samples and have people with a variety of accents pronounce the proposed name. This is another reason why wacky letters may be found in names in odd places, like Jez Juvrak, I don't even know if I pronounced that one right, or Zeljanz, which is spelled X E L J A N Z. Uh, Personally, I think they should be sure the drug is pronounceable by the average consumer or the average doctor on Talk 10 Tuesdays as well. After up to four years and devising up many options, only one proposed name will be assessed by the Food and Drug Administration, FDA, at a time, so the drug company submits their favorite. Twenty to thirty-five percent of medication names are rejected on the basis of safety concerns. If rejected, they have to try again. If all else fails, they can always fall back on asking the cat to choose a different name to submit next. Back to you, Chuck.
1: <laughs> thanks, Erica. very much. What a delightful story that was. Erica. We do have a question let 's see if we can get that question before we say goodbye to everybody.
2: All right, Rose. The question is for you. Do you know when plans will be notified if they are selected for a, for conrad v this year? You can explain what that means
6: well i 'll try to explain that but um, first of all let 's recall that I said that the new sampling model will um, focus on conditions and health plans that have notable trends. That means not all health plans may end up being sampling this sh- sampled this year. That's one big thing. The contracted RADV groups have been watching the progress of this RADV rule, and I suspect that we'll start getting those notifications mid-year like we have in the past. I think it's usually around June or July. Um, so that's Stay tuned. Let's see how they implement this new rule.
2: Okay, we'll see how it all shakes out. Thank you very much, Rose Dunn. And back to you, Chuck.
1: Thanks, Erica. And thank you again, Rose Dunn. And that is going to be wrap for this, our 544th live edition of to Tuesday. And I want to thank our panelists today, Rose Dunn, whom you just heard, Tiffany Ferguson, Lori Johnson, who reported from CMS this morning, Tim Powell, and Linda Holtzman, who reported our lead story. And, of course, a very special thank you to my co-host, Dr. Eric Reamer. And remember, you can listen to all the Talk 10 Tuesday broadcasts on Stitcher, Apple, Spotify, and Google Play. And when you do, rate us, give us a review. Until next Tuesday, I'm Chuck Buck reporting for Talk 10 Tuesday and ICD 10 Monitor. Have a great week, everybody.
0: Talk 10 Tuesday is a production of ICD 10 Monitor.